If you will, turn back in your Bibles to our ongoing study of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last time we began with Paul's phrase, which completes chapter 2, verse 3, in what I called, as I hope, a memorable way of remembering these various events of the day of the Lord, and the outline points are these, the rebelling and the rebel. That's in verse 3, which says, for that day will not come, that is the day of the Lord, until the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That tells us about the rebelling the world rebellion, and who is behind it? The rebel, rebel with a capital R. And if you were with us, we also talked secondly about the blaspheming and the blasphemer. The blaspheming and the blasphemer. Verse 4, who opposes, this blasphemer does, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then thirdly, from last time's message, we talked about the teaching and the teacher. From verse 5, Paul himself, he reminds them, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you, and that's a repeated, continuous action, I repeatedly told you these things. And you remember I said that that means that Paul was ever the teacher, ever the teacher. He's always trying to teach and minister and see what it was that the Thessalonians were deficient, not in knowledge, because he clearly says, I've told you these things repeatedly, but in the sense of reminding them. That's one of the teacher's role, to remind. Peter says that on several occasions. I say these things by way of reminder. I know you know these things. Sometimes I and other preachers can often be accused of saying the same things over and over again, even In a tedious way, some people saying, I've got that, move on. The problem is we don't got that unless we're living it out. And the way we live it out is to be reminded of it perpetually. And because of that, I'm just not quite through with the teaching and the teacher, that third outline point. I'll tell you why. If you hear Paul saying in verse 5 that he's been reminding them continuously about what he's he's teaching, and in this particular context, he's teaching about the day of the Lord, this coming, awful, terrible day of the Lord, where the world, the world as we know it, will receive the greatest level, the greatest enactment of judgment that the world has ever known or will ever know. We just read that in our scripture reading, didn't we, from Matthew 24. 
It's, it's so cataclysmic that Jesus said, if it weren't for the sake of the elect, no one would be spared. That's never happened in world history. And when Paul says, I've continually told you these things, it's not just by way of reminder. It's also maybe a bit of an admonishment. Why? Because of their, their fear, their fright, their amazement, perhaps even with false teachers and false prophets and false letters that are coming their way. And he's hearing, undoubtedly from Timothy, as Timothy reports back to him, Paul's not able to go to them right now. He's been hindered by Satan, the Bible says. And so he's hearing this very, very scary news about the Thessalonians being scared themselves. And of course, he wants to remind them, but he also wants to chide them a little bit. Don't you remember I told you these things? So I want to backtrack a bit, and I want to go back to the point that I ended with last time, and that is that the teaching and the teacher has a legacy himself that he's teaching. Now, some of this, of course, could be by direct revelation of the Lord. Undoubtedly, it is. That Paul is receiving from the Lord Jesus himself some of this revelation about the day of the Lord and about uh, what's going to happen. But it's not merely that, though glorious that is. It's also Paul having been taught by the Lord Jesus himself, and particularly from those passages, though Paul may have not had all of them, but he certainly had some of them, and the Jesus tradition of Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discount uh, was certainly something that he was very conversant regarding. So either by direct revelation or by the teaching that he has come to know and believe and understand, and there's even a third, and maybe we put this third in the number one position, and that is this, Paul's a Jew. He's a Jewish person. He's a teacher. He's been uh, schooled by Gamaliel, famous teacher in Jerusalem. And what was Paul being taught? He was being taught how to skillfully understand the entire Old Testament. It's what a Jewish boy was growing up to do and to be. I've been over there in Israel twice, and when I go to the Wailing Wall, and when you go as a man, women aren't allowed, sorry ladies, into the very bowels behind that Wailing Wall, I walked in and I saw all of these older men and middle-aged men and young boys, and they were praying feverishly. You know how they go back and forth, back and forth like that, praying. And then I looked over in another section, and I saw literal bookshelves uh, to my great delight. And as I saw these bookshelves, I saw them teeming with the Hebrew Scriptures. There seemed to be many, many shelves and many, many copies of the Hebrew Scriptures. And I would watch even these young boys go over and take the Hebrew Scriptures off of the shelf, and they would begin to read, and sometimes they would do that same kind of motioning 
as they were reading. They were so into what they were reading, and they were reading for comprehension, and they were praying, and undoubtedly also memorizing, and that's what Paul was also doing. And if Paul was trying to understand the Old Testament, and he was understanding particularly the eschatology of the Old Testament, that is, final things, the last things, that's what the word eschatology means, Paul was undoubtedly immersed in the book of Daniel. And it is so very interesting, my friends, that what the Apostle Paul writes here in 2 Thessalonians is a virtual carbon copy of some sections of the prophecy of Daniel. You don't believe me? Turn to Daniel 11. Daniel 11. And as you're doing that, I'll read what Paul says here, beginning in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. You can stay in Daniel 11, I'm reading here, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that's Paul's version of these last days. And notice in Daniel chapter 11, particularly verse 31, the Scripture says, forces from him, Daniel eleven thirty-one, forces from him, be interesting to find out who the him is there, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Does that remind you of anything? Daniel to Jesus to Paul. So very interesting. Verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Does that remind you of anything? 2 Thessalonians 2. That is this. 
That is this. How about Daniel chapter 9? Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed. That means 70 weeks of years. And 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. You can, you can, you can hear even in the very language the idea of everlasting righteousness. This is, this is the end, folks, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, 70 weeks of years. Then for 62 weeks of those years it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time, and after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, one week being seven years. And for half of the week, that means three and a half, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations, that is the abominations of these desolations, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Remember I told you that the word son of destruction or the phrase son of destruction is the son who will himself experience destruction. The one who brings desolation shall receive his end, the desolator. Can you see Paul reading the book of Daniel and with further instruction, further knowledge, even as a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, like you and I would read Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 31. And Paul, being this faithful Jewish man, is saying to the Thessalonians, put it all together. I want you to put it all together. I've told you these things. Remember, what Paul is doing is he's compressing all of these things in his letter to them, but he's already in an auditory way, in a verbal way, he's already taught them these things. Because he says in verse 5, haven't I told you these things repeatedly? So this is that teaching. Specifically, when the man of lawlessness takes his seat in the very temple of God, and by the way, one has only to look, to read through the latter part of the book of Ezekiel, to know that in these last days, the temple will be ultimately built right on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, Israel, prior to the day of the Lord. Very clear in my mind. It's the latter part of the book of Ezekiel. We could go to other places, but this is what's going to happen. A a, a temple shall be rebuilt in in Israel, where, where we know it, where we see it on our maps. It's going to be rebuilt And at some point after its rebuilt condition, this lawless one, this 
this man of lawlessness, this son who's going to be destroyed himself will try to bring destruction himself before he himself is destroyed. And what will he do? He will try to go into that very temple area and he will succeed. And when he succeeds, he will bring the abomination of desolation. And when he does, he will pay dearly. So, Paul's ever the teacher. And then he says, let me tell you just a little bit more in this compressed letter about another event, which I'll show you in a minute is also from Daniel. And let's call this, number four in our outline, the restraining and the restrainer. The restraining and the restrainer. We've had the rebelling and the rebel, the blaspheming and the blasphemer. That's the son of destruction. That's the man of lawlessness. That's the Antichrist. We've had the teacher and the teaching. That's Paul, ever the teacher, telling them, warning them. A man who knew the book of Daniel, like the back of his hand, taught by the Lord Jesus in a couple of different ways, undoubtedly. And now the restraining and the restrainer. Look at verses 6 and 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And you know, and you know, that's the first phrase, isn't it? Well, doesn't that tie exactly with what he just said in verse 5? Haven't I repeatedly told you, you, you these things? And you know. It's continuing on in his, in his argument, in his, in his teaching and training them and reminding them. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, in God's sovereign timing. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. That's verses 6 and 7. So what does Paul do? He goes on reminding these Thessalonians about yet another important aspect of both as we've been saying in this little series, the description and the depiction. The description is the rebelling, the blaspheming, the teacher, and the depiction is the rebel, the blasphemer, the teacher, and it's the same here. The description, the restraining. He's going to describe that. And then he's going to say, and let me tell you about the restrainer. That's the depiction of who that is. And this next description here in verses 6 and 7 has something to do with some kind of restraining of the Antichrist. He's being restrained somehow. We don't quite know what that is. What is the restraining? Handcuffs? Imprisonment? Maybe it's simply something like this, just a word from the Father to his associates, restrain. Could be just that. One little word will fell Satan. Martin Luther writes and sings. One little word could just be this, restrain. And every one of God's followers do what he says with a word. We don't know. This description has to do something with the restraining of the Antichrist. And what is most interesting, at least to me, and 
very consistent, by the way, with this whole section about the coming day of the Lord, is this description and the depiction of who it is. Let's talk first about this description. It's that word restraining, translated from Greek to English for us like this, and you know what is restraining him now. Now, the Thessalonians know what it is, but because Paul is writing now in a compressed way in this shorthand letter, he doesn't say to us what it is. Now, to me, that's incredibly tantalizing. I mean, Paul, could you just help out the 21st century believers for a moment? Tell us what the restraining is and tell us who the restrainer is. You're teasing us. You're tantalizing us. Give us some more clues about uh, who and what this restraining might be. And so he doesn't. It's kind of frustrating. And, of course, it begs the question, what is the what who's doing the restraining? Because it says, and you know what is restraining him. So it's a what. Whatever this, this is described as, he says it's a what. And you know what the what is of the what? It's the restraining. That's the what. Now you're saying like me, well, give me a little bit more, why don't you? We don't know. It's restraining the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, somehow. Restraining him from what? I suspect it's this, restraining him from doing all of the ultimate dastardly deeds that he wants to do. He's being held in abeyance by the sovereign power of God. Does that give you an encouragement about how God is controlling our world and your life and all the events of your life? He sure does me. And whatever this restraining is, praise God that it is. You and I need to read the last part of verse 7 right after we've been reading verse 6. Only he who restrains it. Restrains it? What's the it? Whatever the restraining is. We don't know. The cosmos knows. It may be this sort of uh, all-out conflagration of the worst world war you've ever seen or imagined. Maybe that's the it. It's the end, right? So the it's got to be the whole it of utter disaster. And now it doesn't just say, you know what is restraining him, but now it says only he who restrains it is taken out of the way. So it's a he. So the restraining is a what, and the one doing the restraining of the what is a he, which means it's a person, a being. So the being, the person, as the restrainer, is restraining. And we know now the description and the depiction but we're still tantalized and wanting to know more. And what it is is a description of some kind of restraint of the Antichrist and that so that he, the Antichrist, may be revealed in and by 
the perfect timing of the providence of God at a sovereignly appointed moment. And that depiction is someone, a being, who is the restrainer and is who, by the very depiction, the one restraining. Oh, I wish we had more. And Paul goes on to uh, to add yet another phrase to the earlier reference to the man of lawlessness. Notice what he says in verse 7. He calls it now the mystery of lawlessness. Now, what is that? The mystery of lawlessness. Is that some kind of magic or magic potion or black magic? or No. The word mystery is often mysterious to us because we think all kinds of things about it, and we shouldn't. It's very clear, and it's very easy. Every time that word is used in contexts like these and in our New Testaments, it simply means this. It's not mysterious. The mystery of whatever the mystery is, and in this case, the mystery of lawlessness, is simply this. A mystery is that which has been hidden that is now being revealed. That's all. That's all it is. That's all it means. It's a mystery, not in the sense that it's shadowy and it's sort of a black figure. And when you're thinking of eschatology, you might even think about this antichrist, this black shadowy figure who's trying to do all of his mayhem on the world or in the world, and perhaps that's the mystery of lawlessness. Not at all. Mystery is simply a word that means in our New Testaments that which is hidden, which is now being revealed. Now, of course, for us, I don't know if we as 21st century believers will go into the 22nd century and the 23rd century, and we might. I hope not. I hope these are the latter days of the latter days. But if that's true, and whatever is God's sovereign timing, He will determine in His time and by His decree that the mystery which has been hidden from the ages, especially about the mystery of lawlessness, about the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness, and he will in his time be revealed. That's all it's saying. That's all it means. And Paul's described him already, the man of lawlessness. And do you remember that I said to you that Just like the word Antichrist, who is being depicted here, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and the mystery of such lawlessness, when it will be revealed, is tantamount to saying that this Antichrist being, this person, is being restrained whenever that restraining begins, and when that restraint is pulled off, he will be revealed. The mystery will be over and he will plot his plan, and he will step into that temple, and probably a whole lot of other things in the mix of government and false religion, and all of this will come, and it will happen, and it will happen, in my judgment, uh, in a seven-year period, and the first portion of that time will look like or seem to be a period of peace, a kind of treaty, uh, a kind of uh, calm before the storm, and then three and a half years in, a deception, he fools everyone, and when he walks into that temple and he promotes himself as God even over against Yahweh God, the mystery of such a revelation of lawlessness will finally come to light. 
And when that happens, it'll be just like the Apostle John said in 1 John and a couple of passages that we read last time. There are a bunch of antichrists in the world. They are antichrist in the sense that they don't love God and they don't love those who love God. They don't love God and they don't love their brother. And because of that, they are antichrists, plural. But this guy, this guy that we're talking about, this guy is so dastardly in his deeds, he's so powerful in who's controlling him, which we'll find out later is Satan himself, that when he does what he does, he'll be antichrist, capital A the worst of them all. And we know this, even as John says, there'll be Antichrist, but there will be the Antichrist. And Paul goes on to say that it would be actually far worse than it is right now, except for the restraining and the restrainer. I take great comfort in that. I take huge comfort in that that God is in control of all of this. Look, I am, I am personally in my person and in my abilities and in my gifts and in my physicality no match for whoever this man is. I'm no match. And neither are you. He's, he's going to be the ultimate antichrist and he is going to bring utter mayhem And the only reason it's probably not happening either now or whenever it's close to this time that we're reading about is because he's being restrained by a sovereign God. Try that on for size in the next big challenge and trial of your life. God's in control, totally in control. From the greater, something like this, to the lesser, even those little sparrows that flitter around hopping on the ground. God knows it all. He's got it all under control. But there will come a time, my friends, make no mistake about it, that when God the Father determines that the time has come when the restrainer is to be finished with his restraining, he will be taken out of the way, the Bible says, loosed from his restraining. It's almost as though God says to whoever this is, restrain. And then when the sovereign time comes, he says, no more restraining. And when that happens, quite literally, my friends, all hell breaks loose. All the restraint is off, and the terrible, awful coming day of the Lord will be upon the world as we know it. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, okay, Lance, get on with it. Who is it? I mean, who's the restrainer? Okay, I know Paul hasn't given us this. It's shorthand. It's, he, he's already told them who it is, but it's not in the pages of Holy Scripture. Well, then who it is? I mean, the sentence even says it's a he, a, a, a man of some kind, a being of some kind, a person of some kind. Who, who's the re- restrainer? And furthermore, If this guy that he's restraining, the Antichrist himself, is so bad that Jesus Christ himself comes to the earth and kills, then this is really bad. Which means the restrainer has been taken out of the way. And when he does, 
The only person who will be dispatched to come is Jesus Christ himself who kills the Antichrist on the spot. So who is it? Who's this restrainer? The Bible doesn't tell us to praise him. The Bible doesn't tell us to worship him. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray to the restrainer. It just says the restrainer. And if it's a he, who is he? But maybe someone says, well, you know, it says he, but it, it's sort of like a metaphor for, for something else, like maybe, uh, maybe human government. And by the way, human government is one of seven or eight interpretations, believe it or not, of who the restrainer might be. I mean valid interpretations or potentially valid interpretations. There, there could be a hundred but when you sort of uh, knock all of the ones out that are spurious and unlikely, you got maybe seven or eight interpretations. So read any commentary. Read all you want. Spend all of your time reading, which is not a bad idea. And ask yourself the question, who is it? What's he doing? Why? When? How? Where? And it can't be human government because they're in league with the guy. They're not going to restrain him. They're in league with him. Human government, the, the false religionists of the world, they're all in league together. I don't see that at all. That, that doesn't seem to me to be a valid interpretation whatsoever. Here's another one, and I'll just give you two, and then I'll tell you what the right one is. Perhaps someone says it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the restrainer, and that sounds very logical. That's, that's a interpretation that's been sort of, you know, strong through the test of time and investigation, but I don't think so. Why? Because in my judgment, the church has been gathered together in the air with Jesus, and that's why they say, well, then that's the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit goes with the church as the church has been raptured, and so therefore, the Holy Spirit is there with the church bringing them to Christ. And so when he's there, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, has been taken out of the way. And I say, one big problem. He's omnipresent. If he's omnipresent, how can he be taken out of the way? Well, they say, you'll see it's that phrase, taken out of the way. It doesn't mean, though he's omnipresent, that he's not here. It just means he's taken out of the way in the sense that he's lifted the restraining while he's still here. And I say, the problem with that is that's not what that phrase means, taken out of the way. You're, you're, you're messing with the phrase, and you're making it something that accommodates your interpretation that it must be the Holy Spirit. So let's dispense with that interpretation, and I have one for you. I think it's Michael the archangel. I think it's the archangel Michael, the patron angel protector of Israel. You say, really? That sounds about as cockamamie as some other interpretations. No, no, and I'll tell you why. Let's go back to Daniel. Let's go back to Daniel. Daniel 10. Daniel 10. Here's a eschatological detail for you. Remember, Daniel to Jesus to Paul. Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. 
Remember, if Paul is taking his cues from Jesus, who's, who's also that one who knows Daniel's prophecies quite well, because he wrote them. The Holy Spirit, he wrote them. Daniel 10.10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, this, this enigmatic person who's talking to Daniel, and he said to me, verse 11, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. That's an angel, my friend. And that's a bad angel. It's a demonic angel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, literal kings of Persia, fights, and skirmishes, wars on the earth, verse 14, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. And then look at verse 18, a second reference to Michael, again, One having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. We don't know who that is, an enigmatic figure, the appearance of a man. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, that is my superior, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. This is a galactic war battle in the cosmos. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. This is the battle. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these, except Michael, your prince. Second time Michael's mentioned. And by the way, just cross-reference a little bit. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when it talks about Jesus coming, we're going to read that at the end, when Jesus comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who will not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Angels are attending as militants as soldiers in God's army, doing what he sends them to do. And in that case, when Jesus comes back to the earth, he'll be bringing not only these translated saints, but he'll also be bringing his own army with him. Angels. What about Daniel chapter 12? Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise whom? Michael. This is the third time he's mentioned. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Isn't that an endearing title? He's the patron angel for the Jews. He's there to protect them. And there shall be a time of trouble. 
Does that sound like the terrible, awful day of the Lord? Such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. It's exactly what Jesus said, Matthew 24. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Yes. And then look at verse 10. Remember this dastardly son of destruction, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Understand what? Well, go back to chapter 11, verse 36. What what will they understand? They'll understand that the Antichrist is here, that the Antichrist, this king, Daniel 11.36, he shall do as he wills. He'll exalt himself. He'll magnify himself above every God. That's the Antichrist going into the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods, against Yahweh. And he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. And that's when Michael, God says, release, unrestrain. And Michael takes the foot off the gas. You see, that sounds pretty fanciful. Sounds like you've come up with an interpretation that may be your own. Believe me, when you're standing up and you're preaching the Word of God, you better get some help. And I believe I have it. Jeffrey A.D. Wyma, very able commentator. I don't step in this pulpit unless I read him. And here's what he says. Paul's description of the restraining entity here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7 is similarly influenced by the role that Michael, the patron angel of the Jews, plays in the vision of Daniel 10 to 12. The apostles' argument follows exactly, listen to this, the apostles' argument follows exactly the chronological schema found in Daniel 10 to 12. In other words, 2 Thessalonians 2 is following to the letter, Daniel 10 to 12. Eschatological tribulation will come upon God's people only when Michael, the guardian of God's people, ends his protecting or restraining work, which parallels perfectly the order of events presented by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 12. And he's not finished. He goes page after page after page of this particular interpretation of Michael being the restrainer. And he says this, the context of Daniel 10 to 12 involves a vision of a heavenly figure. Remember I told you this enigmatic figure who was talking to Daniel? It involves a vision of a heavenly figure who has been sent to tell the prophet, that is Daniel, about a war. That's chapter 10 verse 1. That is apparently taking place in two dimensions. A heavenly dimension That's what's happening in the cosmos that none of us see, where Michael, the chief prince or patron angel of Israel, fights against the princes or patron angels, the demons of Persia and Greece. In other words, that's what was happening as Daniel was writing it, but that's not the only thing that was happening. And then he says, and there's a second, an earthly dimension where kings of the south and kings of the north do battle against each other. And he describes that in chapter 11, verses 2 through 45 of Daniel. 
And then Dr. Wyman says this, the pattern then repeats itself with a brief description of an incident that takes place in the heavenly realm. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Chapter 12, verse 1. He will arise. This is followed by earthly events involving first a time of unparalleled distress for God's people and then their blessed deliverance. What happens in the heavenly realm impacts what happens in the earthly realm. It's going on right at the same time. We can't see it in the heavenlies, but we can see it in the earthly. He goes on to say, the evil patron angels of Persia and Greek work through their earthly kings of both the south and the north in ways that negatively impact the people of God. Yet, Michael, the patron archangel of Israel, who protects God's people, according to chapter 12, verse 1, fights against these evil angels, chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, also chapter 10, verse 13, and thereby restraining their destructive impact in the earthly realm as each human king rises only briefly before finally falling in the quest of ultimate power. So Michael's been doing this restraining for a long time even with earthly kings, Greece, Persia. That's his role. That's one of the ways that God dispatches him to do his work. And then Dr. Weimer says this, Michael's role in the vision of Daniel 10 to 12 then is that of one who restrains the forces of evil similar to Paul's depiction of the catacon, catacon, restraining restrainer figure in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as one who restrains the mystery of lawlessness who is already at work in the world. So there's Michael, just restraining, just doing what God has bid him to do. And then, according to verses 6 and 7, the time has come. The time has come. Look back at Second Thessalonians 2. The time has come. Here's what it says. It's already at work, this lawlessness, just like the Antichrist spirits, the plural in 1 John, they're all at work, but then there's going to be the ultimate man of lawlessness and the ultimate Antichrist, and he's being restrained now until he is out of the way. And then what happens? Here's verse 8 as we close. And as Matt Williams said earlier, that doesn't mean I'm finished. Just finish with this outline point in a few minutes, and it's this, the killing and the killer. That's verse 8, the killing and the killer. Verse 8, and then, and then meaning when the restraining by the restrainer is complete and the Antichrist is fully ensconced in the temple proclaiming himself to be God, and then the lawless one, that's him, the son of destruction, will be revealed. Revealed in the sense of he is going to have complete and total sway over the entire world, proclaiming himself as God of the world, whom, verse 8 says, the Lord Jesus, when he comes, when, he, when he's appearing, And isn't this so interesting? It uses a little sort of double entendre here. When the lawless one will be revealed, his unveiling, his coming, his parousia, the Lord Jesus will come with his parousia, 
his coming, his unveiling, his revealing, and will kill with the breath of his mouth, which is like a quote out of the very Greek text of Isaiah 11.4, will kill with the breath of his mouth this Antichrist and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That may be one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be brought to nothing by the mere breath of the Savior's mouth. Incredible. And I know there's going to be someone who says, Lance, that's what they say when they're confounded by something I say, Lance, don't you think that all this language of killing and judgment and chapter 1 when it says suffering the punishment of eternal destruction is oh so massively harsh? Well, of course it's harsh. And it's the only remedy for even greater harsh. The man of lawlessness. You don't want to meet him and neither do I. And you want somebody who's more powerful than me and you to kill a beast like that with the breath of his mouth. Why do I say that? Because according to verse 10 and later on in verse 12 of this passage, which we'll study tonight, it says that all of the people who follow this Antichrist are those who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And according to verse 12, they have pleasure in unrighteousness. Look, my friends, the worst, the most cataclysmic, the most dominant, the most evil and wicked being on the face of the earth, save his commander-in-chief, Satan himself, is the Antichrist. And you want harsh things to happen to him. You want that. Because as he gathers those around him who are the unbelievers of this world, there'll be more and more and more and more and more of them who refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love the truth. Why? Because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. And here's what you need. Here's what I need. You don't have to turn there, but as we close, here's what we need. Some people say, I don't want to believe that my Jesus, meek and mild, is a killer. Philippians chapter 2 makes it very, very clear. This is, this is what we need to hear. This is, this is our killer Savior who stamps out unrighteousness because of those who have pleasure in it. The one who is going to stamp out all of those who don't love the truth. Verse 8, and he being found, 
Speaking of Jesus in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, even the name Antichrist is above that name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, this Lord, this Lord of all, this Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's in charge, not the Antichrist. And he's Lord of all. And if that doesn't do it for you, 1 Corinthians 15 will. Because in chapter 15, this is the end. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. That's what we all like to go for, right? In the movie, in our reading, I, I want to I want the part where it says, and then the end shall come, colon. And then we're all locked into what's next. And then the end will come when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. Notice that. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, including the Antichrist himself, the son who's destined for destruction like Judas, the son of perdition, the son who is destined for perdition, hell and judgment, and so is the Antichrist. He's one of the enemies put under Jesus' feet. The last enemy to to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. What does that mean? Everything's going to be subject to him, and he's the only one who's not subject to subjugation. In verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. God the Father. He says, I've done everything you've asked me to do, and this judgment is that after effect of the world's conflagration of the massive Antichrist of the whole of the world, and he's going to be dealt with. And then when he's dealt with, and when I bring the kingdom back to you, you and I and the Holy Spirit will be all in all. This is, this is a hallelujah. This is a hallelujah time. And we're in him. We're in him, if you know Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is, this is a day a moment, an hour in which, as I prayed earlier, men and women, boys and girls, must bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, may our children and our children's children bow the knee to Jesus. May they understand the gospel as we as their parents communicate it to them. May we ourselves be in Christ and may it be that one day we will reign with him forever and ever.
No wonder Paul says to the Thessalonians, be comforted by these words. Father, we are comforted. We're not the Thessalonians, but we are who we are in the 21st century as believers in Jesus Christ, just like they were believers in Christ. And we thank you for the champion, the Lord Jesus, the writer of all wrongs, the vanquisher of all foes, and he will reign forever and ever. And when he gives all the kingdoms of the world back to you, Father, the glorious Trinity will be God all in all. May there be no one here who fails because of their love against the truth and their pleasure in unrighteousness to fail to bow their knee to Jesus Christ who is the sweet, blessed Savior, meek and mild, humble and lowly, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And He will come. And He will kill by the breath of His mouth any of those who do not bow to His Lordship. It is right that he does so. And may we be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes by faith, faith alone in Jesus our Savior. For we pray in his name, amen.